Vermont Viewpoint is a public affairs program produced and funded by WDEV and the Radio Vermont Group. We welcome listener feedback. Email your comments to vtviewpoint at radiovermont.com. From WDEV in Waterbury, welcome to Vermont Viewpoint. I'm Kevin Ellis. Thanks for joining us. It's Friday, September 15th, and we start today with climate change and end with the legacy of former Governor Madeline Kunin. In between, we'll talk to Bob Nay about all things Washington, and we'll talk about the uh, the art scene, which is just huge over the next uh, few months, with Seven Days editor Dan Ballas about all the developments going on in Vermont arts. We'll do that at 10.15, and there is so much going on. The World's Fair in Tunbridge has kicked off. I have not been Wheels for Warmth is happening for tire recycling. Can't wait to do that. Mitt Romney, the senator from Utah and the former uh, Republican candidate for president against uh, Barack Obama, is retiring, not going to run for re-election. Hunter Biden, is being the son of the president, is being criminally indicted by the president's Justice Department. The United Auto Workers have gone on strike against big car makers. House Republicans are launching an impeachment of the President of the United States. And folk singer Len Chandler has died. Um, We could do shows on every one of these issues, and we hope to. All of that, we take your calls along the way. The number to call is 802-244-1777. The email is vtviewpoint at radiovermont.com. First, a Friday essay. I cannot think of a bigger issue in American life than the assassination of President John F. Kennedy on November 22, 1963. And now, after all these years of controversy and conspiracy, one of the president's protectors, a Secret Service agent named Paul Landis, has written a book and has come forward in an interview with the New York Times to contest the fact, uh, that contest the notion that it was a single bullet that killed the president. And this is, these are the words of Peter Baker, who has covered five presidents for the New York Times, where he went to Cleveland, Ohio, to interview Paul Landis. He still remembers the first gunshot. For an instant, standing on the running board of the motorcade car, he entertained the vain hope that maybe it was just a firecracker or a blown tire, but he knew guns and he knew better. Then came another shot and another, and the president slumped down. Now, 60 years later, Paul Landis, one of the Secret Service agents just feet away from President John F. Kennedy on that fateful day in Dallas, is telling his story in full for the first time. And in at least one key respect, his account differs from the official version in a way that may change the understanding of what happened that day. Mr. Landis has spent most of the intervening years fleeing history, trying to forget the unforgettable, the memory of the explosion of violence and the desperate race to the hospital and the devastating flight home and the wrenching funeral. It was all too much, too torturous, so much so that Landis left the service and Washington behind. His memory challenges the theory advanced by, you remember it, the Warren Commission, that has been the subject of so much speculation and debate over the years, that one bullet fired from a gun of Lee Harvey Oswald at the president's limousine hit not only Kennedy, but Governor John Connolly of Texas 
in multiple places. Landis's account in the forthcoming memoir would rewrite the narrative of one of history's most earth-shattering days in an important way. It may not mean any more than that, but it could also encourage those who have long suspected that there was more than one gunman in Dallas on that day, adding new grist to one of the nation's enduring mysteries. As with all things related to the assassination, Landis's account raises questions of his own. Why did he remain silent for 60 years? which has fueled doubt, doubts from even his former Secret Service partner. And memories are tricky, even for those sincerely certain of their recollections. A couple of elements of his account contradict the official, the official statements he filed with authorities immediately after the shooting, and some of the implications of his version cannot be easily reconciled to the existing record. But he was there, a first-hand witness, and it is rare for new testimony to emerge six decades after the fact. He has never described the conspiracy the, to the conspiracy theories and stresses that he is not promoting one now. At 88 years old, he says all he wants to do is tell what he saw and what he did, and he will leave it to others to draw their own conclusions. There is no goal at this point, he said in an interview last month. In advance of his book, The Final Witness, will be published on October 10th. I just think it's been long enough that I needed to tell my story. What it comes down to is a copper-jacketed 6.5-millimeter projectile. The Warren Commission decided that one of the bullets fired that day struck the president from behind, exited from his throat and continued on to hit Mr. Connolly, somehow managed to injure his back, chest, wrist, and thigh. It seemed incredible that a single bullet could do all that. So skeptics have called it the magic bullet theory. Investigators came to that conclusion partly because the bullet was found on a stretcher believed to have held Mr. Connolly at Parkland Hospital, so they assumed it had exited his body during the efforts to save his life. But Mr. Landis, who was never interviewed by the Warren Commission, says that is not what happened. In fact, he said, he was the one that found the bullet, and he found it not in the hospital near Mr. Connolly, but in the presidential limousine lodged in the back of the seat behind where Kennedy was sitting. Well, this is going to kick off a whole new round of theories, uh, a revisiting of the Warren Commission report, and uh, we promise to dedicate a show to this. Um, and uh, it's going to be uh, it's going to be a fascinating issue going forward. I, as I said, I cannot think of an event that changed the course of American history more than this one. Uh, World War II, obviously, but uh, but 1963 and and to this day, uh, that assassination changed the country in ways that we uh, we know, and some ways we don't. More on that later. Uh, we're going to come back with Chris Killian from Conservation Law Foundation right after these messages. You're listening to WDEV. We're back. Our next guest is Christopher Killian. He is Vice President of Strategic Litigation at the Conservation Law Foundation, and he spends his time on climate change, specifically trying to bring oil companies and other fossil fuel 
companies uh, to to account for climate change. He has he, he has uh, filed lawsuits against uh, Shell Oil and Exxon Mobil, and those lawsuits have been going on for quite some time. Chris, welcome to the show. Oh, thanks for having me, Kevin. Uh, good to talk to you. Uh, so. Tell us, let's start uh, with a broad brush and then go to specifics. What's your focus these days? I mean, you, might, you might familiarize the, the, the audience with what the Conservation Law Found, Foundation is and what it does. Why don't we start there? Sure. Well, actually, um, at the outset, I just want to acknowledge uh, the challenges that um, so many Vermonters uh, have faced this summer um, as a result of the changing climate um, and the suffering that people have been going through, as well as the work that you and your colleagues have been doing to to report on it and to, to highlight uh, what's going on in communities. I, I think that's really where the rubber meets the road on, on the issues that we're going to talk about today. But Conservation Law Foundation is a regional environmental uh, advocacy organization uh, we're based out of Boston, but we've had an office in Vermont uh, for uh, over 30 years now, um, and we have offices in all of the New England states. Uh, we work um, at the local, state, to the degree we can, regional level in New England, and then our, we look to be uh, relevant and impactful to the degree we can on uh the national stage as well, focusing on the major issues affecting uh, all of us. Um, and that spans a, a, a fairly wide array of, of activities. We, you know, we're in public utility commissions uh, fighting for uh, uh, forward-looking uh, uh, energy policy that addresses the climate uh, crisis and among other things, energy. We've been a leader on promoting and, and fighting for energy efficiency over time. We have an oceans conservation program. We have uh, folks working on healthy and, and resilient communities, actually getting into community and working on all kinds of uh, policy solutions and projects. Um, we have a environmental justice program uh, focused on the people that are. Uh, in, in fact, bearing the brunt of a lot of environmental problems disproportionately in communities throughout New England. Um, and uh, we have a clean air and water program uh, that does just what its name indicates. And my, my strategic litigation uh, colleagues uh, focus on sort of large cross-cutting environmental challenges, and we use litigation as a primary tool in that work. So, and, and specifically with regard to climate change, you are in the midst of if, uh, at least two major lawsuits against ExxonMobil and Shell with regard to climate change. Can you sort of give us an overview of what those suits are about? Well, what those suits are about is um, that for over 50 years now, as the climate crisis has been unfolding, in fact, the fossil fuel industry has been running an aggressive uh, campaign 
Um, and I really, you know, sort of am characterizing the industry writ large, including their trade associations and and supporting organizations, um, to first study and understand uh, the impact that their own products and activities were having on the climate. Uh, and it's really remarkable to look back and, and even, even uh, come to understand the depth of knowledge that these companies had about the risks that their products create for the world dating back half a century or more. Uh, and then uh, confronting this uh, existential crisis because um, it, it isn't um, – hard to, to, to reach the conclusion when you come to understand the impact of these product, products that we can't just continue, we couldn't just continue business as usual without getting in major trouble. Uh, when they confronted that reality, they just uh, sort of reorganized their, their posture and ran, have run a, a decades-long campaign to deny climate science, to fight every, every major public policy, policy initiative that would uh, slow down the, the reliance on and use of, of fossil fuels, in fact, dramatically expanding sales and marketing of fossil fuels. Um, and, and now, more recently, uh, recenter again to, to sort of characterize themselves, A, as a victim of this reality that they've created and and seek uh, government, essentially government protection, government bailouts, both through subsidies directly, but also, um, you know, by sloughing off the obligations uh, of dealing with the impacts to government and to taxpayers and communities, uh, and also um, by promoting false solutions, by saying, we can continue to burn fossil fuels at the same rate, and uh, we're going to rely on some, you know, totally unproven technological fix that really has virtually no likelihood of any success as a means of just continuing business as usual. And it's really quite remarkable um, when when you look at the specific details. And we have documents and records in the public domain that really just very clearly clearly show this reality. Um, so we're seeking to to hold those companies responsible for bearing their fair share of the cost, A, and B, um, you know, it's now common parlance to talk about the just transition and the need to get to net zero, and many of these companies are talking about net zero. Net zero means that on balance there are zero uh, carbon and brought more broadly greenhouse gas emissions. And the best way to get there is by dramatically reducing reliance on burning fossil fuels. Um, if you're a company that's extracting, refining, and selling fossil fuels, that doesn't look so great. So uh, it's not surprising, but it's really quite remarkable, uh, the depths of, of deception and advocacy that have been pursued, uh, both to avoid the reality um, that we all now face uh, in terms of impact on product sales, but also, um, you know, point the finger at others. Um, and so our lawsuits specifically um, 
acknowledge the depth of knowledge that the companies had and basically look at their own activities, at their own facilities that are toxic and dangerous and located in at-risk communities, often environmental justice communities, and point out uh, that these companies actually have legal obligations and duties uh, under environmental laws to assure that their facilities are safe. And even though they're parroting the words that they care about climate risk, they're not doing anything to actually protect their facilities from those very risks. And that's what our cases are about. I see that. You actually, in the, in the lawsuits, you actually point to uh, facilities that are owned by these companies. Uh, the one in Boston is, I think, on the Mystic River. Uh, and so that as these floods happen and these storms happen, these facilities are vulnerable and will will uh, be destroyed or damaged and pour uh, tons and tons of, of uh, oil into the river, uh, sort of damaging the public interest. So that's the thrust of your of the lawsuits. Is that right? That's the thrust of our lawsuits. There are also claims that point out that um, these companies, under federal law, have an obligation to disclose to regulators information in their possession uh, that is relevant to um, uh, their own compliance with those environmental laws. And we're pointing to duties that have been recognized now by courts past the motion to dismiss phase. So we're, we've survived motions to dismiss and we're now in discovery. We've pointed to obligations in these permits that um, make uh, their knowledge about climate change and climate risk entirely relevant to their compliance, but they have not actually uh, complied with their disclosure obligations to, to let regulators know about what they knew, the sophisticated knowledge that they have had about climate risk. And the hypocrisy gets even deeper. There are many examples where these companies have made new investments of different types in projects, and they've engineered those projects to address climate risk where there's new money on the table, but they're not really spending much of any money at all um, on making their existing facilities that um, are essentially already in place and in communities, often very aged uh, infrastructure. They're not doing much of anything to actually uh, make those facilities safe. And those are some of the most at-risk facilities. And these are not hypothetical scenarios in Superstorm. Well, the, a very good example is in Hurricane Katrina. There was a Murphy oil terminal in the heart of New Orleans that was flooded. Uh, not surprisingly, tanks floated off their moorings. There were no flood protections in place. There was a massive spill of multiple kinds of uh, refined materials uh, and thousands of homes were rendered uninhabitable as a result. It went right into communities that are still suffering to this day. Um, not surprisingly, major lawsuits were brought at that time, and the case uh, quickly settled for obvious reasons um, that were pragmatic, I think, for Murphy Oil. In Superstorm Sandy, um, Shell's own uh, facility in Seawar in New, uh, New Jersey 
uh, had three tanks blown off their moorings, rupture, and they had a 400,000-gallon spill of diesel distillate directly into the Arthur Kill, uh, uh, Arthur Kill uh, River and the surrounding community. Uh, these sorts of things are happening all the time. And what we're pointing out is that these uh, companies know a lot. They know how to engineer things and that they should be spending money uh, as a matter of legal requirements to protect the communities they operate in. And their recalcitrance in doing so, their failure to do so, is just an indication of what really is at the heart of it here, that they'd rather keep the money and deploy it um, in other ways uh, to enrich themselves and their their investors rather than um, – uh, spending the money necessary to protect the communities they operate in. And that's just one example of the broader reality here. Um, we can talk about the need to protect ourselves from what is happening, where these communities can uh, face direct and material risks and do as a result of storms and uh, storm surge and extreme precipitation, extreme temperature, uh, but more fundamentally, we need to reduce our reliance on fossil fuels, and we need these companies that have set in motion the, uh, the climate crisis that we're all facing to be bearing uh, the costs that they have through their actions contributed to inflicting on society and on all of us. Chris, can we talk about uh, – get? specific about the cases themselves, uh, just to be clear, these are civil cases, not criminal ones. I know that there are lawyers out there who believe that these companies have been criminally negligent and well as well. In fact, engaging in a kind of a broad worldwide conspiracy to cover up their uh, responsibility for all of this. Can you talk about civil versus criminal and how you and your organization approach these cases? Uh, well, sure. Um, only the government can uh, prosecute crimes, um, and at least to date, uh, there there are no uh, government entities that have uh, have brought criminal cases against uh, against the fossil fuel industry and and, and their enablers. Um, so all of the all of the cases thus far, um, and there, you know, our work right now is a very specific set of theories, um, really unique uh, within the broader universe of climate change related litigation. Although uh, gaining some traction beyond the work that we're doing, but it, there are many other cases that have also been brought. They're they're all civil cases, even where they've been brought by governments. And basically, civil cases, what we're, we're looking at is compliance with the law, um, not through the criminal lens. And in, in our cases, under um, the ones we have currently pending uh, under federal environmental laws, uh, the remedies that we can seek are um, injunctive relief, uh, a court telling uh, the companies to comply with the law and take cer certain actions to assure compliance with the law. And we can obtain um, civil penalties, which are paid to the U.S. Treasury 
um, and are essentially monetary penalties based on a number of factors, including uh, any economic benefit gained through noncompliance that um, is at a dollar value determined by the judge and paid to the U.S. Treasury. If we settle cases uh, in this context, we can actually convert some of the penalty money, often a large sum of penalty money, to what's known as a has historically been known as a supplemental environmental project payment, where instead of just going to the U.S. Treasury, the money goes back into the community affected in some way uh, in order to effectuate environmental benefit. Um, those are the sort of remedies that we can obtain through our cases. But I do want to mention that the state of Vermont um, has a through the Attorney General's office on behalf of the people of the state has a lawsuit against many of the fossil fuel majors alleging um, various civil law uh, violations, um, including consumer fraud uh, uh, based on the misrepresentations and, and, and lies about their products, um, the greenwashing and, and other aspects of their behavior, um, and also uh, based on uh, what is known as uh, tort law. You know, people think of like personal injury cases or personal injury law, but concepts such as nuisance and negligence and product liability. Uh, so Vermont itself, the state, is pursuing that lawsuit in state court. There are dozens of other similar cases filed by states and large cities predominantly moving through the courts. There's been quite a bit of press coverage on, on these cases. Uh, and those cases are seeking monetary damages, um, essentially right. aggregating the cost to a state or a municipality of dealing with the, the climate crisis. And those costs are becoming all too regular and all too real often in very tragic ways, as we've all experienced in Vermont this past summer. There are many similar examples, whether you look at, you know, communities directly affected in the Gulf states or, uh, the, you know, along the Gulf of Mexico coast or, um, you know, the broad impacts that occurred in Superstorm Sandy are kind of a quintessential example where the city of New York, for example, has already spent billions of dollars uh, hardening Manhattan in the face of rising seas, storm surges, extreme precipitation, and the like. Those costs are all too real and are being felt today. And the states and cities that are pursuing these lawsuits are basically saying that the fossil fuel industry should pay its fair share uh, because of the misrepresentation and obfuscation and lying that has occurred, uh, contributing substantially to the severity of this crisis uh, that we're all that we're all facing. Again, those are Chris. Can I law can, can I cases. let me let me break in and ask you this: Is there so you're basically saying that there's a, I think that. You can draw a straight line from the flooding in throughout Vermont that damaged homes and businesses and the millions and millions of dollars that it's going to take taxpayers, be they federal or state taxpayers, <clears throat> to uh, clean up the mess 
and fix these buildings. And you're saying there's a straight line from oil co- that, that from fossil fuel burning that warms the climate and changes the weather, and that these companies knew about the impact uh, for decades and did nothing about it, and therefore they should be responsible, at least in part, for helping clean up the flood mess in Vermont and other communities, weather-related events in other communities. Do I have that right? Well, I would say that it's even worse than that, Kevin. I would say that they did something about it. They they ran campaigns to defeat every major forward-looking public policy initiative in the U.S. at the federal level uh, and beyond, including the Kyoto, uh, ratification of the Kyoto Accord, uh, very notably, any major piece of federal legislation uh, leading up to you know the landmark legislation that was actually passed this year, which unfortunately is really um, you know adopting uh, the notion that we need to buy off the fossil fuel industry to a degree. It's a it's a historic and major step forward, but um, there are huge subsidies continuing and going to the fossil fuel industry uh, in that legislation. But beyond that, uh, they lied and and denied the actual reality of climate change. So it's, it, uh, unfortunately, it's not that they did nothing. It's that they uh, acted uh, in a misleading uh, and dishonest way to uh, continue uh, the sale of their products just as they had before. And I, I want to point to one very specific example because this is actually uh, something that people can see directly. Uh, Recently, uh, a a Dutch researcher um, released some documents that he had obtained from archives uh, looking at Shell specifically. In 1991, Shell, among many other uh, planning-related activities, um, ran a side-by-side comparison in 1991 of two scenarios. One was called global mercantilism, and the other one was called, uh, I believe, something like sustainable future. Um, And global mercantilism was basically business as usual and escalating just as has occurred, almost an exact uh, prediction of what has, in fact, unfolded in in the sale and use of fossil fuels and then the other was a rapid pivot in 1991 to reduction in use and sales of fossil fuels and pivoting to renewable resources and energy efficiency and a sustainable approach to our energy use and, and, our, and our energy uh, posture globally. And they showed, they predicted that with that pivot in 1991, we could have essentially avoided all of the crisis uh, reality that has unfolded since. It's a stark side-by-side comparison that was completed within Shell for their planning purposes in 1991. And what did they do? They chose global mercantilism. They chose refine and sell as extract or finance sell as much fossil fuel as possible 
and they base that approach on a foundation of lies and obfuscation about what they knew. Now, if they hadn't done that and we had pivoted, not only would we have avoided the problem, but no one would be turning around and pointing the finger and saying, hey, you should pay for what you contributed to here and what your products caused. But they did. And that is at the basis of these lawsuits. It is unlawful uh, to, to lie and misrepresent and obfuscate um, in a manner that injures uh, other society and others on, on this sort of scale. That's why we have tort law. That's why we have consumer protection laws. That's why we have product liability. And that's why we have obligations and laws for people to disclose information, to certify that they're being truthful and honest, and that they have are meeting duties and obligations to protect the communities they operate in. And that is okay. at the root of these lawsuits. And it just seems very simple and consistent with our concepts of liability and our concepts of, of, of law in this country. And that's why states and others and our organization are pursuing these lawsuits. Chris, uh, what is the timetable for these lawsuits? And you say you've gotten past the uh, sort of efforts by the companies to dismiss the cases. Uh, what happens next where you're in discovery? What Tell our listeners when they can expect some sort of result. Well, it's um, <laughs> a good question. Uh, not surprisingly, these lawsuits have been hard fought. Uh, these are uh, very large uh, companies with lots of resources, hiring some of the largest law firms in the world. Uh, so they've they've taken some time to unfold. Um, and it's interesting that you asked me the question because as I've uh, been on the phone with you, I got notified that we just had a new uh, case management order entered in our case in federal district court in Connecticut dealing with Shell's massive uh, transloading terminal in the port of New Haven, uh, a, a huge facility with massive tanks right on the edge of the of the harbor, uh, unprotected uh, from uh, sea level rise and storm surge and the like. Um, and uh, we're looking at um, a, a trial date sometime late next year, early 2025. So the discovery process will has essentially been reengaged now after some major motion motion practice motions being filed and litigated. Um, and so we're we'll be through our fact discovery phase by February, and then into uh, our presentation of expert testimony in the case after that. Um, so I would say, you know, uh, unfolding over the course of the next two years, um, really in the cases that are active right now, we have two cases against Shell, one in Rhode Island Federal District Court, one in Connecticut Federal District Court. Uh, we have an ongoing case against ExxonMobil on similar theories. Uh, we have a case against Gulf Oil LLC, also in Connecticut. Uh, all of them are proceeding in parallel in one one way or another. Um, but in the meantime, we do see uh, also a lot of advancement and activity with regard to other climate litigation. I uh, don't know what the status with the state of Vermont's case is right now. It has been sort of waiting in line for some decision-making in other similar cases. 
and those cases are proceeding forward. There was just uh, an argument at the Supreme Court of Hawaii um, addressing these issues uh, and moving that case forward. It's the only one of the state or municipal damages cases that has proceeded thus far past a motion to dismiss, um, but that was appealed up to the Supreme Court of Hawaii, and, and there should be a decision in that this fall. Uh, so everything is kind of moving in parallel. Yeah. Uh, I, I have ahead, to Kevin. ask this. Yeah, I have to ask this. This these, these lawsuits, of which are taking years and years uh, of your life, uh, they put you in. They put all of us actually face to face with all of the the good and the not so good of a, of a market system that incentivizes all of us to buy and buy and buy and sell and sell and sell so we can create wealth. And I, I, I'm curious about your personal uh, experience with that, where you you face off against companies whose job it is, who we, who, who our Congress has incentivized to sell as much fossil fuel as possible, uh, do you ever look at it and say, I'm trying to turn around a, a, a system that is impossible to turn around? This is a giant battleship that, that you and others are trying to uh, stop and turn in a new direction. Well, look, first of all, I'm an optimist. You can't do this work unless you are. And also, I'm just personally motivated because of my own desire to see uh, uh, the kind of sustainable and beautiful world um, that uh, all of us can see and experience, particularly in the in the places we love, uh, Vermont uh, certainly being one of those places for me, um, and for our kids. And because we can, I am an optimist because there are solutions. We don't, and and the 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 rationale behind this litigation is. Uh, really focused on the fact that these large, sophisticated companies investigated these issues in depth and came to understand the import of what the burning of their project products meant for the planet 50-plus years ago, concealed that from the public, and then chose to lie and obfuscate and deny to continue to sell their product. If they had chosen a different path, then the major oppositional force to all of the good public policy responses that uh, were being conceived of, multiple attempts, they weren't perfect, largely would not have seen the level of, of uh, um, pushback and ultimately defeat that they did. You know, what would the world have looked like if James Hansen's testimony before Congress in about the global warming and, and climate change were simply acknowledged, embraced by the fossil fuel industry in the late 1980s, and we could have transitioned and worked on confronting this reality then instead of 
ending up in an existential fight where Shell Oil Company is still taking the position in our litigation that climate change risks are speculative and only occurring in the future. That is their legal position in my cases today. Even though you go to their website and they say they embrace Paris and it's the largest climate change is the largest global challenge we all face. The rubber meets the road with actions, not not words and 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 smoke screens. Um, so the solutions are there, but we also can't let this this end up as a giant cost burden that is sloughed onto society writ large. Right. Solely, we can't let it happen that. Um, those who perpetuated and lied about the risks and the harm are able to cast themselves as victims in need of subsidy, where, you know, somehow we all need to pay for their hardening of the, you know, in Exxon's case, the Baytown refinery in the Houston ship, ship channel that's already three feet below sea level and grossly unprepared for climate change. Um, why should we bear those costs? That's not fair. Um, right. That's not right. So that's really what it's all about. Okay. Chris Killian, you're kind to join us. We really appreciate it, and we will we'll have you back on when uh, there's more news to report. Chris Killian of Conservation Law Foundation and a lot of lawsuits against a lot of oil companies. Uh, thank you for joining us. Kevin, thanks so much, and I hope everyone stays safe as uh, Hurricane Lee uh Heads our way. Okay. I'm Kevin Ellis. It's Vermont Viewpoint, and we'll be back after this. You're listening to WDEV.